If your life was visualized as a ship, what is your rudder? A ship's rudder. It's that thin shaft hinge vertically at the stern that steers the vessel forward. Some rudders are visible above the water line, as this one is right now, not weighted with uh, its cargo. But most are positioned below the surface somewhere. Looking at most ships, you'd never know that the rudder is even there. It cruises along, the rudder's not seen. But that thin piece of metal determines the direction that the ship will take. It controls and it orders its course. What that unseen rudder, what that unseen rudder accomplishes is large. What is it in your life? What is it that determines the direction and the purpose of your life? For my followers, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that rudder is the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The life-altering reality that God is the sovereign King. The reality of our final accounting before God in eternity. The reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. This kingdom focus, this orientation to eternity, this active submission in all things to the Lordship of Christ is a rudder that radically distinguishes us from the world in which we live. A world in which people are equipped with very different rudders. Now outside, for the most part, we look the same. The rudder is below. We don't see it. And we look very much the same as those around us in many levels. But there's a control that directs us in all that we say and do. What is it? Matthew chapter 6, we come to verse 19 today as we work our way through this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uses three images to exhort us to a life of unwavering devotion to the realities and the priorities of God's kingdom. An orientation that will steer our every purpose, and our every goal. In verses 1 through 18 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus condemns religious deeds for the sake of gaining man's approval. In verses 19 and following, Jesus aims at exposing the love of material goods that so commonly steers the lost. Now, I think he could describe, of course, many other sins, many other idols, but he narrows in here on this idol of greed and materialism in particular, this love for money, for things. His first lines of instruction, his first line of instruction here is that we must, if I could put it this way, locate our bank. We need to locate your bank. He says, In verse 19 of Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
We see his prohibition here in verse 19. It is uh, often a mistake to absolutize what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Is he saying here, don't have a savings account? It's wrong to save money. Well, let's think about it. Jesus was supported by individuals who had enough money stored away that they could take care of him. Luke chapter 8 and verse 3. He did not condemn them. In the parable of the talents, remember Jesus' parable there, it at least implicitly teaches that saving and investment and wisdom with money is commendable by the Lord. Matthew 25, 15 and following. He encouraged his followers to invite the needy into their homes for a meal. Luke 14, 12. And in a day when people lived often day by day upon the money that they could scrap together, this is saying that some of you will have money enough in store to bring other people to your table to eat. He encouraged his followers to invite such people. People with no money in reserve cannot do that. Invite them to your table, he says. Perhaps a way to demonstrate it very quickly is to move to the writings of the Apostle Paul in sync with Jesus' spirit. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That statement there in verse 17 is very much the opposite of someone teaching that all material wealth is evil and that all we should do is give it away. God has given us everything to enjoy, but we're not to put our hope in the uncertainty of riches. Very similar statement to what Jesus says here, the uncertainty of riches. They are rather to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You can hear parallels of what Jesus is saying in Paul's writing. I don't know how consciously he's reflecting that, but there's connectors between the two. And I don't think they're at odds at all. It's just wrong to absolutize what Jesus is saying. I think this is a very good interpretation of what he is saying. So let's settle it here. Jesus is not forbidding thrift or savings plans. He's not forbidding the kind of accumulation of wealth that permits us to give to others and to advance the cause of Christ. He speaks, rather, against a life focus on accumulating wealth. He speaks against greed and extravagance and insensitivity to the poor and any sort of materialism that ties our focus to this world. Living for money, ordering your life to get more and more is irrationally short-sighted, Jesus explains. Moth and rust destroy such investments. The larvae of moths fed on the natural fibers of their woolen robes which lasted a lot longer than the clothes that we wear. And it left holes in those clothes. Think about this, says Jesus. Rust ate away at metals. But this word rust was also used much more widely, not simply of eating away at metals, but also rats eating away at grain, the work of mice and worms and mildew and the like. 
could all be described with this Greek word. So think about it. And admit as an owner of possessions in this world, that everything in this fallen world is being eaten away by something. Metal rusts. Look at your car. Wood rots. Look at your deck. Cement cracks. Food spoils. Paint peels. Clothes fade, fray, and fall out of favor. We use paint and traps and poisons and protective measures to hedge against this entropy, this falling apart. But everything we own is lunch for something. And somebody stands forward and says, well, what about the precious metals, the precious stones? They don't get eaten by anything. No, but a thief can snatch them away, says Jesus. And if it's not a literal thief, it's electronic fraud, it's taxation, it's a market crash, it's a scam artist. Everything's being eaten up by something in this fallen world. So don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But, verse 20, the command... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's that simple. It's a radical, rudder-setting proposition, however. Knowing that God is King, knowing that we must finally give account to Him in eternity, knowing that heaven is real, we set our rudder to storing up treasures in the bank of heaven. We really do this. Jesus teaches How do we do this? How do I make investments in eternity? I think the biblical answer is by acts of faith and witnessing for Christ. We do it by giving time and talent to the service of Christ's church. We do this by giving to the needy and encouraging the faint-hearted. We do it by giving to spread the gospel and giving to build up Christ's church. Everything the Bible presents as earning reward in heaven is such an investment. And read the Bible through with your eyes open to that reality, to the reward of eternity in response to the obedience of our life here in this life and you will see the way to invest in heaven's bank. These are investments untouchable by moth and rust. They can't be eaten up by anything. They can't be stolen by thieves. Nothing can take this away from us. As Jim Elliott famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a wise investment. And the reason, says Jesus, verse 21, it's a little bit different than we might think. The point Jesus has made is just that. It's not foolish to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. This is wise banking on one level. But verse 21, he gives a bit of a different reason here, adding to it, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When the rudder that steers your life directs you to invest in eternity, your heart will follow. When you invest in Christ's cause on earth, your focus and interest and orientation of life will track in that direction. Our heart, 
writes John Stott, always follows our treasure, whether down to earth or up to heaven. Wherever that treasure is, there your heart follows. If you set your heart on getting rich, greed will steer your life to emptiness. If you set your heart on gaining the approval of others, meeting expectations, showing off, pride and vain glory will steer your life to emptiness. If you set your heart on gaining ease and pleasure, that's the rudder that drives you. Your rudder will be calibrated to a self-centered way of life that proves empty at every turn. But if you develop a generous heart that loves to give, that loves to invest in the cause of Christ, a rudder that takes you in every circumstance to invest in eternity, your heart will follow there. Your passion will be oriented in that direction. Now, this isn't going to happen automatically. It's not an equation. But I find this kind of instruction at various points in the Bible, it's a bit counterintuitive. We kind of tend to think, and rightly so, that our heart will generate goodness. If we have a good heart, we'll do good things. We'll move our way in that direction. But there are times when the Scripture teaches this way, do the right thing and your heart will follow. And that's a strategy that we as believers and followers of Christ need to take from time to time. Do the right thing and your heart will follow. So it's your heart will generate the right deeds. It is the heart issue. Out of the outflow of the heart we act. And yet, there are times in doing what is right that our heart follows. And giving is one of those times. Laying up Treasure in heaven is one of those experiences. This is just one reason why I do not apologize for encouraging Eden Baptist Church to give everything we can to advance the cause of Christ. And I, it's, it's hard because occasionally you hear and see those preachers on um, television who say such horrible things about wealth. And by simply saying the right things and pulling the right strings, they get people to line their pockets, the preacher's pocket. We want nothing to do with that health and wealth gospel, so to speak. But I don't apologize for encouraging us to give everything we can to the advance of Christ's cause. Because I know this, giving weans my soul off of the idolatry of wealth. It does. If it's done rightly, it does. It weans me off of that idolatry. I know also that giving pulls my heart focused toward eternal realities. That's what Jesus is saying here. It rivets our attention to heaven. When we are investing our capacities and our resources in the cause of Christ, our hearts will follow. Now, all things being equal, we obviously can do it in the wrong way. We can do it to be seen by others, as Jesus has been teaching. But when we genuinely give to the advance of the cause of Christ, we are rooting our hearts in heaven. We can't get enough of that. 
And I'm utterly convinced such giving will wildly profit the giver in eternity. And so I don't apologize at all. God loves generous givers not because they are doing Him a favor. God loves generous givers because He can hardly contain the passion to pour out His eternal riches upon them. That's our Father. Imagine a six-year-old girl who her father loves more deeply than she could ever understand. And she comes up one day with the idea that I'm going to have a lemonade stand. And I'm going to make a lot of money by selling lemonade. What does dad say? Well, he talks to mom and they become the bank. They're the financiers. Every single thing that she puts out on the table, they've purchased for her. But she begins to sell the lemonade. And a few people actually buy some things, and she's getting close to purchasing some things she really wants at the store. It's just all small things, and very little money is exchanging hands. But it's just, it's just she's loving it, and she's getting close. And Dad comes home from work, and he can see the wheels turning in her head. And she says, Daddy, I want to give you a drink of lemonade for free. What's Dad thinking? I financed this whole thing. It's all mine. You're mine right now at six years of age. What's he thinking? He realizes then as he talks to mom and they put it all together that she knows she's giving up something she could purchase by giving him a free glass of lemonade. What's in his heart? How can I bless this girl? How can I love her? How can I pour out upon her blessings that far surpass one cup of lemonade? Do you think our Father in heaven thinks differently? When we give to His cause, we give only what is His in the first place. And when we give to His cause, He can't wait to pour out His blessing upon us. Unlike the preachers of our day on the television, that does not mean He will make us wealthy. But it means like this father and his daughter with the lemonade, He has us covered. He is not going to pat us on the back and say, wow, if you hadn't given me that cup of lemonade, I would have died of thirst. I really need you. Thank you. No, He's going to embrace us as our Heavenly Father and say, I can't wait to pour out my blessing upon you. Is that not what Jesus is saying here? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Root, tether your heart to eternity by the way that you bank by the way that you invest your capacities and your resources. So when I encourage Eden Baptist Church to give sacrificially to Christ's cause, to invest in people and ministry, as I preach that same message to myself, I perceive a God of infinite generosity. And encouraging a culture of generosity in a church if pursued biblically and honorably, is nothing less than encouraging us to love God with all of our heart and to serve His kingdom.
to root our hearts in eternity. Where is your primary investment bank? Where is it? Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. Your heart will follow. He says, secondly, set your focus. So identify your bank and set your focus. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This parable-like observation is difficult to interpret. And Bible-honoring commentators differ fairly significantly on how to understand it. And I think much of the trouble comes that he's using a figure of speech which his original hearers would have understood probably much more readily than we do. It's just not the language that we use. It's not the figure of speech that we use. But commentators have long debated, does Jesus speak of the eye as the window through which light passes from the world into the body, and so illumines the body like a house or a room is illumined by light? Or does he picture the eye as a window from which the light inside passes to that which is outside? And there's all kinds of discussion, and people have written from both angles to understand what it is. We're going to have to move past all of that debate for sake of time and because I don't have a clue what the answer is. But the idea is generally clear. The idea can catch us. A person with good eyes can get around well, and a person with bad eyes can't. Whether it's darkness outside, or they're blind, or whatever it is, if I can see well, I can get around. If I can't see well, I'm going to have problems. We've all walked somewhere in the dark and wish we hadn't tried that. But the point is the healthy eye is one that is calibrated to the values of God's kingdom. This eye clearly sees that Jesus is Lord, and it lives that way. An unhealthy eye is a person whose rudder is set to another life course. If we follow rabbinic literature, it's possible that the unhealthy eye was a figure of speech for stingy hearts, and the healthy eye a figure of speech for a generous heart fits the context of monetary considerations here in this passage. But in any event, it works for all of life. If my eye is clear, if I see it from God's perspective, I can move about this world in a way that is connected to the realities of a sovereign God and the Lordship of the risen Christ. If I don't see that, I'm blind. And I'm stumbling around in this world. So Jesus calls us here to have a healthy focus in life. A focus that includes certainly generosity, if that's not the primary point. But a focus which is in any event calibrated to the priorities and the goals of God's kingdom. Choose your bank, select it, invest in heaven, and set your focus. As our eyesight helps us navigate the natural world, so our spiritual eyesight is to keep us focused on God as supreme and on His kingdom as determinative in everything that we do and value. How's your rudder? How is it set? What is your focus? So locate your bank, set your focus, and thirdly, identify your master. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Two interpretive notes here, just briefly, in order. The love-hate language. This, again, is a figure of speech that doesn't work for us. It just isn't how we operate within the English language. But the love-hate language, a figure of speech used by the Hebrews, shouldn't be absolutized. Jesus used this same figure when he said, you should love God and hate your family. He didn't mean it in the terms like we would typically use it today. But it is a figure of speech that would have been understood by them. It's not bitter hatred, but rather a rightly ordered love is what he means by this figure of speech. So if you have two masters, you'll hate the one and love the other. That is, your love will be ordered by the one that you choose to serve, and you can't serve two equally. Second interpretive issue is this word money. The Greek text transliterates the Aramaic word mammona. At this time in history, a word that referred generally to material possessions. You may see mammon possibly in your translation. But it's just material possessions. So not just cash as such, but whatever material possessions we have, we can't serve them and serve God. This is what he's teaching us. Now let's think on that. I cannot serve God and material possessions. I cannot serve God and material possessions. Is the rudder of your soul set by material possessions, by a lust for the things and the recognition of this world? If it is, it's not set by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that needs to change. And this brings us to contemporary Christianity. In his book, Words from the Fire, Al Mohler reports that several years ago, British researchers conducted a door-to-door survey on religious beliefs. We're going to knock on your door unannounced and ask you what you think. One of the questions was this. Do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles? One man responded like this. No, I don't believe in that God. I just believe in the ordinary God. Doesn't that say it all? I just believe in the ordinary God. So many nominal Christians in our world serve an ordinary God who dutifully and respectfully takes his place on the shelf of the world's idols. Such a God is safe. He is undemanding. He is obedient. He minds his own business. He makes no demands upon his people. He's not their master. They are his. Some other God, like money, is the rudder that steers their ship. Well, Jesus would, I think, rebuke such a response. An ordinary God. The God of Scripture seen as ordinary is a myth. There's only one master we must serve, and that is the Lord Christ. 
Everything else is insanity. It's insanity. My journeys long ago led me on a summer ministry tour and to stay in a home with some very interesting people. I've never forgotten them, and I'll, you'll know why in a moment probably. But um, I, there was a young man there in the home who was working through the matter that he had asked two girls on a date to the same event. And the loving people around him were trying to explain how that doesn't work. <laughs> it was, it was, I was doing everything I could not to lay on the floor laughing, but it was great fun watching it. But it was like, what do you think? These two girls are going to come to this event in front of everybody, realize what's going on, and say to each other, oh, hi, how are you? Glad to see you here. I mean, what were you thinking was going to happen? All kinds of bad things fell out because of this. And he was trying to explain to them that to his family, to his mother who wanted to kill him, you could tell. But this guy is probably in his young, early 20s. And, and she's like, what is wrong with you? And he said, well, I like them equally. That didn't help her. It just didn't help her. This is what so many Christians think they can do. I can take Jesus to the dance and some other idol. Because I like them both equally. Jesus disavows us of this insanity. You cannot serve to masters. Brothers and sisters, we cannot make this error with Jesus. It's true, said so often, but if he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If the rudder of your life is not set to the reality that Jesus Christ is the Lord, he has defeated death, I will meet Him in eternity. I will bow the knee before Him. If your rudder is not set by that reality, then it's being steered by an idol. And should Master Money order you around, tell Him, He's not your Master. You are His. Because the Master has so ordained it. That word master, that scares a lot of people. Perhaps it should. In so many ways, slavery is a miserable institution to be shunned and opposed. But it's a beautiful concept if your master is sinless and loves you with an infinite love. Jesus says, hold on to your life and you'll lose it. Be the master of your own fate, the captain of your own soul, and you will relinquish your life. But give it to me. Serve me. Allow me to be master of your life, for that is what I am. And you will find your life. This master is not one who captures you to mistreat you. This master captures you in order to set you free. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for redemption from your sins, you will be free indeed. Before his followers, this passage is rudder work. Now, it is primarily oriented toward this God of money, 
and how we relate to it. But overall, we could fit in any number of other idolatry struggles. At the heart of it, he says we need to locate our bank to invest in eternity. We need to set our focus in this life to generosity, to giving, to faithfulness, to his cause. And thirdly, we need to identify our master to know we can only serve one. And to know that every one of us is serving something, someone. This rudder steers you to invest your resources where they should be invested. To love other people as they should be loved. To serve Christ as Lord, refusing to yield to idle masters of any sort, including brute money. So we have to ask, what is the rudder? Of our lives. Jesus' vision is that below the ship, steering its every direction in your life, making every decision financially in the realm of pleasure, in the realm of goals and purposes, the whole orientation of life, where you live, how you live there, who you meet, how you present yourself, what you talk about, what you spend, how you deal with it how you look at all of life, is to be driven by this reality. God is sovereign king. It's to be driven by this reality. I will give account before him in eternity. And driven by this reality that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns from heaven's throne. He is the master of my soul. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Lord, for the conviction of spirit that comes as we consider the words of Christ and how foolish we so often are. I pray for those that are just coming to realize these ideas, to understand that giving you the mastery of our possessions Giving you the mastery of our resources is not giving you anything but what is yours already and what you deserve. I pray that you would nurture within their hearts a desire to see financial resources from this perspective, to be steered by it. I pray, Lord, that there would be a generosity that marks this church, a willingness to part with resources, realizing we cannot keep it. It's not going to last forever. We can invest it in eternity. And we can glorify you by the way that we relate to the things that you put in our hands. I pray that this realization would continue to dawn and that this maturity would mark our congregation, that this would be a church that is ever characterized by generosity and faithfulness to you, that it will be clear that master money is this church's servant. Show us ways in which to demonstrate that. Steer us and guide us in the affections of our heart and order our lives by the risen, reigning, and returning Savior. Every knee will bow before Him. I pray that it will be clear in the way that we live our lives in all of its determinations 
that Christ as Lord is a thought of great joy and thanksgiving to us. That we live to serve Him. Steer us in this way, we pray. Fit our ships with this rudder. And for those who are seeking to master their own life, I pray that you would make it clear to them that Christ alone is Lord, that He alone is Savior, that He alone can rescue and redeem those enslaved in sin, that He is a master of infinite grace and love and forgiveness. Draw such individuals to yourself as Savior, even this day we pray through Jesus. Amen.